Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I'm your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode. If you're uh, listening on Apple Podcast, give us a follow there, tap the five-star rating, and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow there and hit the notification bell to never miss an episode. We're here on another episode uh, with uh, one of my favorite authors, Tiffany Yecky Brooks. Uh, she was on, I believe it was 2022, October of 2022, uh, with the episode Gaslighted by God, talking about her previous book, because she's now got another book out, uh, Holy Ghosted, and we're going to be talking to her about that. Uh, Tiffany, welcome to Great Story Podcast once again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, you know, I shared a lot of quotes from your previous book. I'm working my way through uh, Holy Ghosted that comes out April of 2024. Um, and th- there are a lot of work put into this one, but it seems to build in a lot of ways on Gaslighted by God, and including another title that is just like you want to pick it up and be like, hmm, what's going on here? Holy Ghosted, that's... That's interesting. So let's let's start maybe at um, in what ways maybe does Holy Ghosted your your new book coming out in April? How does that build on Gaslighted by God? In what ways does it do that? Sure. Well, the subtitle of the book is Spiritual Anxiety, Religious Trauma, and the Language of Abuse. And where this comes from is after Gaslighted by God came out, um, I had a number of people who reached out to me and they specifically expressed interest in the chapter where we talked about anxiety and abuse um, because I had pulled the two together um, into one chapter and gaslighted. And so many people said, could you please talk about this more? You know, this explains my experience so much, or this gave me vocabulary or made me realize that what my experience in the church was, was not unique, that there were other people who had gone through this. Um, And that really resonated with me as well, because I, for probably the first 35, 40 years of my life, um, I thought that spirituality, I thought that the faith experience had to be this sense of heightened fear, of anxiousness, of concern, of constantly feeling like I was about to fall short or I could lose my salvation at any minute or I was all I was never living up to what God wanted from me. Um, And it was just this almost obsessive. Fear, Um, and I thought that's what faith was. I had no idea that faith could be anything different. So when I would read about the peace that passeth understanding, I'm like, that's cute. That's not what my experience is. That's not what this uh this whole relationship with God is. And so this is a very personal book. um, But as I wrote it, I found that not only was I drawing from my own experiences, but just like in Gaslighted, there were a number of people that I interviewed who shared their own stories and their own experiences um, that show that this this response um, is not unique to one specific branch of the Christian faith or, you know, one specific, you know, faith tradition stream, um, but is really widespread. Um, And so, yeah, this was sort of, I think, a friend of mine described it, and I thought this was wonderful. She said, Gaslighted by God was breaking the eggs. Holy Ghosted is now figuring out, are we going to make an omelet? Are we going to make a quiche? Are we going to scramble? It's kind of figuring out what the next step is. Now that we've introduced the conversation, where do we go from there? What is this turning into? Um, and, uh, I really, I loved that metaphor because I thought that was, um, that was a handy way to think of it, of saying like, okay, you know, we have sort of the big picture, you know, that the, the subtitle of Gaslighted by God is reconstructing a disillusioned faith. The original subtitle was, uh, reconciling, uh, was it reconciling the God of scripture with the God of experience? Mm-hmm. Um, and so really that idea of what if my experience of faith does not match what I was told it would be or what uh, I was told it should be based on biblical literalism. Um, And so now this kind of takes that a step further to say, okay, so now if that has been your experience where you've struggled with 
this misalignment of your experience and what you were told it would be if you followed the formula. What's the result of that? And what do you do with that? Yeah, listening to you talk about that that fear component, it just brings up, and I think you talk about this in your book in the first few chapters, the the Left Behind series uh, with, uh, who was it, Kirk Cameron? I mean, that, first of all, you know, just very well done, very well done. It it scared the literal hell out of me. Um, you know, I, 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 I talk about it sometimes, and um, we do that gallows humor of, yeah, well, coming home. Sometimes there'd be the freshly folded laundry on the couch and I would think, oh no, no one's here and there's their clothes. I've missed it just like in the movie, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and so that, that does bring up some of that anxiety, but also uh, in, in the sermons, some of us grew up with fear was a a major component. Uh, It is such a great motivator and a wonderful Mm -hmm. tool if you're, looking to control some emotions and behaviors. But before, before we go down that road, maybe it'd be best to take a step back um, and maybe actually get on the same page with what spiritual anxiety uh, entails. What is that all about? And, and maybe what that looks like in the believer's life with spiritual anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think it's, it's essential to say at the output to first define what spiritual anxiety is not. It is not healthy religious devotion. Um, It's not normal feelings of regret or repentance or a desire to do right. And it's not mental illness or a brain health imbalance. And I do talk a bit about that in the book. Um, And then last and most importantly, it is not an attempt to erase or deny the reality of sin or its consequences. So this is not removing the responsibility of the believer to be earnestly seeking God. I, I think um, it's so good that you mentioned that because I, I can hear people saying, right, oh, here's a, a soft grace, soft on sin approach. Uh, here we go. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for putting that out there. Absolutely. Sure. No, I, um, what it is, is it, it's marked by obsessive fears of angering God through either intentional or unintentional sin. Um, It is deep, pervasive doubts of one's own unworthiness of God's attention or care. It is constant feelings of failure at living a moral or Christ-centered life. Um, It's faith responses that are shaped by or rooted in unhealthy thought patterns. Um, A persistent concern about being rejected by one's faith community if you raise questions. Um, Or an incessant stress of feeling out of step or alienated with your religious body. So again, dealing with that um, cognitive dissonance that you hear so much uh, talked about of sort of this misalignment between what you are supposed to believe, what, you know, what um, is sort of required to be a member and what checks the boxes versus what's actually going on in your head and your heart and your soul. And do I actually believe these things or do I just have to pretend that I do in order to remain where I am? Um, And it can present in a number of ways. Um, It can look like um, unwelcome or intrusive religious thoughts, um, pervasive doubt about your salvation, fear or terror of God. And I and I do talk in the book about what this the end of the scripture of fear God and keep his commands, what that actually, you know, looks like in translation of perfectionism is a major one. That's a big that's something I've struggled with personally. Um, There's a big chapter where we talk about that. Le- uh, legalism or, you know, sort of uh, scriptural literalism can be in there. Um, a, fix- a fixation on rightness. It can look like compulsive praying or um, obsessive, aggressive evangelism. Um, persistent negative self-talk, a deep-seated fear of rejection, a fear of speaking honestly. Like these are all different ways that spiritual anxiety may come to the surface for someone who just has this pervasive fear and stress about their relationship with God, where it feels like either God was present and then removed, uh, became removed from their life, where the title comes from of Holy Ghosted, because there's nothing when somebody ghosts you, you know, it's like you can't get that response no matter how many times you reach out. Or conversely, it can sometimes feel like the eye of God is too close and is always right there, ready to condemn, ready to jump on you um, for the for the slightest mistake or stepping out of line. 
Um, and then some people are actually, um, it can even lead to um, reciting prayers or performing rituals um, with a vigor that almost borders on superstition because desperate people resort to desperate measures. And so if you're not getting a response, well, I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try this. Ooh, this worked last time, so let me repeat this ritual. And then it can almost become an unhealthy um, superstition, which is not what faith is supposed to be. And then also there are some people who are really good at masking the spiritual anxiety, and they may not actually show any outward signs of it, but there's this internal struggle that's going on and that marks their entire um, spiritual journey. Listening to all those, it reminds me of the episode we did with uh, Debbie Peck, where she kind of shares some of her journey through scrupulosity, that that mm-hmm. uh, anxiety-inducing um, uh, things that, that go on in your life, just like what you're talking about. And we mentioned in that episode some that may say everything you're talking about, going down it like, I mean, I hear you, and that sounds rough, but have you considered conviction? That may just be the Holy Ghost impressing upon you so much that this is what you need to be doing, that you feel compelled. Isn't that just conviction? So what would you say to those individuals that may not be uh, exactly put off by the list that you just went down? Like, hey, yeah, follow scripture and all it says, you know, if you pray without ceasing, go through it all. Um, this is wonderful. Well, I would... I would say that um, what I've heard from some people in, in that kind of pushback is, well, this is just a new term that is trendy because it speaks to where people want to be right now of this removing, um, removing responsibility. But spiritual anxiety is not a new thing. Um, <clears throat> Moses was raised in a culture that enslaved and dehumanized his people. Um, and we see his... Uh, sense of unworthiness, his insistence that he's not worthy to answer God's call in Exodus 2. Um, Jeremiah condemns abusive and corrupt leaders in Jeremiah 23. And I mean, Jeremiah hated his life. Like, you know, he's called the weeping prophet, like that poor guy, you know? Um, So we see that for all his bluster, Peter, who grew up in a very religious atmosphere that Jesus was trying to make less controlling and legalistic, um, wrestled his with feelings of unworthiness. You know, in Luke 5, 8, he says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Um, the desert fathers and mothers, you know, write about being attacked by, by spirits that are trying to drag their souls away. Martin Luther had something in such a fun word, Anfechtungen, which he called, you know, literally translates the challenges and it's the despair he felt about spiritual attacks. John Bunyan wrote in 1666 that he felt like he couldn't get any relief from Satan's attacks unless he was preaching. Mother Teresa writes about this crushing silence from God in her journals. So we see, first of all, that this isn't something new. It's not something trendy. It's something that has marked Christianity from problematic circumstances. And we can talk about that in a minute. But the difference is that now we recognize it as a detrimental condition that can be harmful to a person's mental and spiritual and even physical health, rather than as a sign of spiritual rebellion to be driven out of the church or as divine devotion to be celebrated or emulated. I would hope most people who say, well, no, you should, you should really go, you know, whole hog on this would have a problem with extreme mortification of the flesh with priests beating themselves, um, bloody wearing hair shirts. Like hopefully people are seeing that that's not healthy, but that sort of, that is the natural endpoint of this kind of anxiety this feeling of I should always be doing more. I will never be enough. I can never rest in God because I will always be falling short. Um, And that is why, sorry, this is just kind of taking us in in another direction, but that is why um, I write in the book about the fact that um, spiritual anxiety is a trauma response. Mm. And by that, I mean, um, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So people don't fear rejection for noncompliance unless they believe, unless they have seen, unless they've been taught that rejection is a possibility. And so a a trauma response happens when your brain recognizes a high stress situation and it kicks you into the the old fight, flight, fawn or freeze response. Um, Something that is meant to help you survive in the short term to get you through, you know, 
this bear attack or this, you know, period of famine or whatever it is. You know, it's this biological response in your brain to a high stress situation. The problem is when that high stress situation is never alleviated and your brain remains in this state of, of amplified stress. And so what was only ever intended to be a short-term response now becomes an adaptive behavior. And it is what you do all, time, all the time. Um, and so for, for spiritual anxiety becoming a trauma response for people who are in um, authoritarian or abusive church environments, and I want to say, and I make this point very clearly in the book a number of times, not all religious leaders are abusers. Not all churches are abusive. Like I try to make that point very clear. I say, you know, past, not all pastors are twirling their mustaches and, you know, cackling while they tie souls to celestial railroad tracks. Like that is not what we're saying. But for people who have come from authoritarian uh, religious environments, that is who we're speaking to here. People who have been raised or exposed to this kind of religion that is about manipulation and control and extracting obedience, um, that's who, who I'm writing to because that's what shapes these kind of thought patterns. And so these thought patterns that were, were meant to be only temporary responses, this heightened fear, this um, sense of panic, whatever that is, those convert into long-term behaviors. And that's what happens. That's what spiritual anxiety then becomes the natural result of that when somebody is in this very high stress religious environment. And hopefully I, most people would agree that is not a healthy way to live. That is not spiritually healthy, let alone emotionally, physically healthy. Well, there's a, it reminds me of a quote from your, your book, Holy Ghosted. Sometimes a person is actually on very close terms with Jesus the struggles to interact with Christians because life in the church leaves them feeling nervous, judged, and under a microscope. Um, I read that and I was like, whoo, yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, when you just, what you're going to wear, what picture may be shared on Facebook, how should I crop this? And uh, I, I told my, uh, this is about me, uh, but uh, I told my wife when I was marrying her because she, she didn't adhere to many of the standards that you know, were, were for me growing up um, in my particular uh, church group that I was raised in. And I, I told her, I said, it'd be a lot easier for us if I were the girl because I know the rules, uh, spoken mm -hmm. and unspoken, and I would know what to do. Um, and she looked back and be so confused by that. And, you know, now we're a decade uh, later and it's just completely different. But that under a microscope uh, judged feeling a little bit nervous about, oh, what's what's going to happen next? I can imagine the trauma response that would that would have. I can imagine uh, having lived it. But I, I want to go to a, a concept within that that you, you've talked about in the book as well, that this spiritual anxiety, it's a learned behavior, not an inherent one. Uh, can you go a little bit deeper on just that phrase, uh, that it's something you learn, not something that you're like, come out of the womb saying, you know, what am I going to do to make God mad at me today type thing? Right, right. Yeah, no, it originates in a person's external conditions and not their neurological wiring. Now, you can certainly have um, mental health or brain health conditions that can contribute to this. Um, generalized anxiety can absolutely contribute. Obsessive compulsive disorder, neurodivergence, any of these things can definitely contribute to spiritual anxiety. But no one is born into the world with a fully developed theology of divine discipline or fear of rejection by their religious body. That is something that we learn that we absorb through our environment. These beliefs and feelings are formed by the experiences that we have within our religious body. And that can be made better or worse by any number of factors like culture, environment, you know, again, neurodivergence, natural disposition, etc. But the experience have to become the, the experiences come first to create spiritual anxiety because spirituality is learned. Our theology is learned. It is not inherent. And so the anxiety that results from it is what comes from the way it has been presented to us. 
if, if that makes sense. No, it, it does. And, you know, it, learned behaviors have to be learned. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, not <laughs> didn't mean at to all. interrupt there. You go into that and, and I know people bring up nature versus nurture. That, that's kind of what you're getting to a little bit with that. But as you're going through uh, a, a, a very strict upbringing, which some of this is, uh, you brought in the fear component of, uh, you know, making sure that we don't don't get too close to the edge. So we're going to stay a, a, a mile this way. Um, which, you know, again, all good intent within all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I mean, if you if you think about it, when the end, end game is, I want to save your soul from eternal torment, uh, so I need to give you a taste of it, make sure that you're afraid of it, and let's go ahead and put your hand squarely on the skillet while it's hot, so now you have the scar and you know that you shouldn't touch that skillet. Uh, yeah, that's let's use fear. Uh, and some of this, you, you, you have a term in the book, um, that I, I don't know if you coined it or not, but the involuntary internalized legalism, um, yes. which is ill almost if you think about it, but, uh, with this internal invo- involuntary internalized legalism, um, how does that relate to what we've just talked about? The, the learned behaviors, as opposed to what goes into you're coming right out innately, these things, I don't want to fall. I need to uh, be nurtured. Those things that are innate to us versus what is learned. Sure, yeah. No, that that is a term that I coined for the book. Um, and I do talk about it. You know, I mentioned scrupulosity, as you mentioned. That's sort of the the Catholic Church's uh, terminology for it. Um, and But I feel like involuntary internalized legalism maybe is a little, little more all-encompassing. Um, and, and I want to start by saying, a number of faith traditions have the chronic practice of shaming the intuition out of people. Mm. And that's really where this begins. So you no longer trust yourself because you're told, you know, well, that's trusting in the flesh. So if you say, well, you know, I have a feeling of this, or, you know, my intuition is telling me this. People say, well, you can't listen to your feelings. You can't trust your feelings. I've heard that from so many radio preachers over the years and so many devotional books. You can't trust your feelings. You can only trust God. God gave us our feelings, right? We are created in the image of God and God has feelings. God has emotions. So whatever we have that is similar to God is part of our being created in God's image. Now, I am not saying that intuition can't be wrong. Mm -hmm. It absolutely can. But the spidey senses that God gave us when something might give us the heebie-jeebies, like listen to that. It is not a sin to listen to your intuition. But how many times... And I'm going to say, especially women, I think, in a lot of churches, have their intuition shamed out of them and told, don't listen to that. Ignore that gut feeling, because that's trusting in the flesh. You have to follow exactly what Scripture says. Now, Scripture's a great resource. I'm I'm not throwing that out. But sometimes these legalistic or literalist applications don't translate to the modern world. You know, and that was something that I struggled with a lot where I would hear, um, you know, well, I don't feel like what I'm being told, you know, what common sense or common decency is dictating here really aligns with a very literalist, legalistic reading. And it'd be like, well, you're just kicking against the goads, you know, but but what if what if the goads are legalism? What if that's what I'm kicking against? Like that was never presented. It was always no, no, no. You know, this legalist interpretation. So. The way I talk about, that's sort of my, my, my prelude to explaining the way I talk about involuntary internalized legalism is that legalism, well, first of all, legalism is about control, right? So it's either about controlling the behavior of other people or if we, that's outward facing legalism or towards ourselves, inward facing legalism, controlling ourselves. Now, it's also about trying to control God. Most legalists would never claim that that's what they're doing, but if you do this extra thing, then God is now obligated to reward you, right? You are now obligated. You have created an obligation for God because of what you have done. That is, that is what legalism is. It is about control. So legalism presents in either two ways. It can either be like a slippery slope logical fallacy, or it can be like a Rube Goldberg machine. So the slippery slope idea is that, well, if A leads to B and B leads to C and C leads to D, then A inevitably leads to Z. Um, you know, and that idea of the slippery slope. And so therefore we can't do A because Z might might result. 
So that's one way that legalism can be applied. The other way, thinking about it as a Rube Goldberg machine, and that's that you know really complicated thing of like the ball hits the dominoes that knock over the glass of water, that swing the pendulum, that hits the balloon, that pops the thing that makes the toaster go, right? This really, really complicated way of doing a very simple thing. That's another way to think about legalism. And when we point that in into ourselves and enforce that with our own behavior of always holding ourselves to a higher standard and a high, and again, great to hold yourself to a higher standard, but if it becomes to the point that you become imprisoned by your own conscience, where you, you are almost immobilized because, well, this isn't good, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough, and it becomes this vicious cycle. Um, I think another way you often hear in business books, the idea of don't let, don't let the good, no, don't let the great be the enemy of the good. You know, like don't not do something because you can't do it perfectly. That's what a voluntary internalized legalism can do to us. We become entrapped by our own scruples because even if we know that our worries or concerns or our fears are irrational or excessive or far outside the spirit of the law, we still feel entrapped by the sense of, yes, but this is what I should be doing. Yes, but this isn't measuring up for what God wants from me. If I could do this, if I could succeed in this, then I would be worthy of God's love then I would be worthy of salvation. And that's what leads to, to, to this deep, um, this deep seated anxiety that, that traps us within ourselves. Well, listening to everything that's being said in this episode, I think one of the, the troubles with talking about this topic is just what you touched on, which is you can always, as a critic of, of what you're talking about, um, sit back and say, well, is that so bad? to want to do, is it, is it so awful to want to bring our best to God? Is it, I mean, if you think about it, Jeremiah, you've already brought up Jeremiah and, and touched on it. He says, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, uh, doesn't scripture itself just say you can't really trust yourself in, in most things and rely on scripture. I mean, it makes it really, really difficult to have a genuine conversation when it's like, yes, but we are to obey the law and mm-hmm. can, every jot and tittle. And it's all worthy for reproof and instruction. So why would we, you're just, you're just wanting the easy way out on this. You're just wanting to go. Yeah, easy. You know, well, and I'd say, you know, there are a couple of ways to respond to that. One is, you know, just look at John Wesley's definition of what it meant to be perfect. You know, he's like, nobody will ever be perfect, but if you have love undergirding every decision, every choice, that is perfection. Now it's not, the the end result is not perfection, but you have this, this rooting in love and that is where the perfection begins. So I'd say, first of all, you know, you, you need to look at that component of, of love there. Secondly, I'd say, um, and something that we talked, we talk about in Gaslighted by God, and then I bring up again in this book, is the Hebrew concept of pekoach nefesh, mm-hmm. meaning, which is where, it means literally to save a life. And it is where life is given priority over anything else. So whatever choice preserves life, whatever choice advances life, that takes priority over the law. And we see that coming out in Jesus's teaching, you know, would you save an oxen from a pit on the Sabbath, you know, like that, that idea of preserving life. And so again, that's a big theme in Gaslighted touch, you know, hit on it again in in this book, because I think it's so essential. You have to look at, is this extreme legalism? Is this pursuit of perfection killing me? Is this draining life from me? So that's, that's, you know, one thing I would say to consider the other is I actually have a chapter in this book where, so I talk about a number of different types of control that can result in this anxiety. And one of them is control through praise. Mm. And that praise can become a way of manipulating behavior. And that is a really key component to a lot of people who have this spiritual anxiety because they feel like it's the very behavior that is, is driving them crazy. And I don't mean that lightly. I mean, very literally putting them into a state of deep, um, conflict, unhealthy conflict. That's what's being praised in the church. Look how much that person prays. Look how much that person is pouring themselves 
into the life of the church. Look how extreme that person goes to, you know, the links they go to to avoid sin. And so it just kind of turns that screw where the very behavior that can be causing the issue is what is getting reinforced and what is getting celebrated. And as a result, we end up commodifying ourselves. And so that we are treating, we see life, we see the church as a divine sweatshop where God is just extracting from us. And that's not what a relationship with Christ is supposed to be. That is not life in abundance. Um, and so I re-examine in that chapter, I re-examine the parable of the talents and the story of the fig tree and a number of these, these familiar stories that are often pointed to, to say, well, this is, this is what's expected of you. This is what's supposed to happen. Re we reframe those. And I look at that and say, is that actually what's going on here? Or if we look at the broader context of scripture, is there maybe something else here or could that be interpreted a little differently? Um, and that's actually a major thing I do throughout the book is there are a number of, of, of familiar passages that I explore that I say, you know, let's, we've been told this means X. And so that's the lens we take for interpreting that story. But if we actually look at the story in the framework, in the broader narrative arc of Jesus's ministry, maybe it doesn't mean what we've been told it means. And so what do we do with those? Can, can we lift those lenses or at least change them or at least be aware of them and see if there is something more that's present um, than what we've been told in an effort to extract something from us, be it obedience or labor or power? Yeah, you uh, going down that road because one of the one of the um, interpretations of scripture that you brought up in your book that I fully remember uh, being used several times for sin in the camp, sin in the camp. We're not mm -hmm. we're not successful in this ministry because there's sin in the camp. Um, and uh, uh, Aiken, yeah, uh, and the gold, um, and they went out and um, they were not successful uh, in their next conquest because. He had not done what God said to do, and that's uh, uh, don't keep any of this for yourself. Um, walk us through that because you, you had an interesting concept on it, uh, a reinterpretation, which I know, and I want to ask you this too because people are going to be, ah, reinterpretation, new light. I knew I'd find it here somewhere. This is heresy. Uh, but before we jump over to that question, uh, walk us through kind of that concept and that reinterpretation or different view. Let's take out reinterpretation and just look at sure. under a different lens for, for Aiken. Uh, well, I'd say, first of all, um, this is not a new practice. Um, Midrash, the ancient Jewish practice of Midrash has been around longer than the New Testament um, of engaging with scripture and really looking at that and saying, what is the story telling us here? And I mean, this is this is the art of exegesis, right? Like we anybody can come to scripture and read a story and if or, or to any text and and read read a text and maybe draw something different from it. But then if you're told this is what the story is about, that is then going to change the what it the lens that you're using to spot different details or to apply this in a metaphorical sense or to draw this out to make sense of this. Um, that is that is exactly what is going on with scripture all the time. So whatever lens we have, we have Western like we we just have to admit, and I know people don't want to. Um, many people don't want to, but like. The, the predominant lens of the Western church right now is the white male rationalist lens, um, you know, stemming from, you know, kind of 18th century enlightenment. Like that is generally, that that's the lens that we've been given. So when somebody like um, Will Gaffney, um, a tremendous um, African-American female preacher, she wrote an incredible book called Womanist Midrash. And it's simply saying, as an African-American woman reading scripture, this is what I tend to notice. And it's more narratives about slavery. Um, and do we understand Hagar differently? Um, looking at trauma, you know, and, and then the, these minor characters who, um, you know, like, you know, she, she, she notices different things in the text. That's not, it's, it's all there. 
right? She's not adding anything new. She's simply noticing details that most of us have, from a white middle-class perspective, have been taught to read past or read through, right? So, I mean, it makes sense to say that we're going to bring our different experiences to the text. Like, that's inevitable. Um, and I don't think any of the any of the reframes that I offer in this book are super wacky and that's far out there. Like everything, everything that I look at, I say, well, let's look at this. Now, this story comes between this story, which talks about this and this parable, which has this as its moral. So how do we make sense of this in context? Does this line up with, so in translation studies, for example, like, so, okay, you could say the, like, just take the sentence, the journalist scribbled furiously on his pad. Now, you could translate that literally word for word. The, the journalist scribbled furiously on his pad to say the diary keeper made nonsensical marks angrily on the cushion designed to absorb pressure. That doesn't make sense, right? That completely changes the meaning of the original sentence. You have to look at it in the context of the overall, uh, you know, situation in which that sentence appears and what it's describing. And so when we cherry pick, when we lift stories out of context, um, we lose the things around it that give us clues as to their meaning. And so that's what I try to do with reframing is so many stories have been picked out because, oh, well, this is a great example of why obedience, you know, absolute obedience matters, or this is, you know, this is why, you know, whatever. But when you look at it in broader context, suddenly you can realize that there are hints in the text on um, the stories on either side of it or the overall message of does this really point towards that or could it maybe be saying there's a different meaning here? Um, and, and so that's that's what I, I offer in terms of this idea of reframing certain scriptures. Everything that we reframe, I support by saying this is a literal translation of the word. You know, so there, there's one in one of the first chapters with fear where, you know, you look at rod and the word rod can be translated differently. And I even say in that one, this is not a tr traditional viewing of it. However, this is a literal translation. What if we understood rod meaning community? Because that is another word rather than discipline. That is another literal translation for the Hebrew word Shabbat. Um, and so that's it's not bringing new things into the text. It's simply an effort to say, let's remove our presuppositions and then approach the text with a different set of eyes. Um, and so, you know, th there are some really, I think, interesting stories or, or examples of this. And, you know, I, I can share some of those if you like, but, you know, I don't want to, I'm sorry, you're, you're asking about Aiken. <laughs> that was a big lead up to Aiken. Sorry. <laughs> well, well Ed, before you jump into Aiken and, and kind of your reframe there, I think it is, it is challenging. Um, and this is something I've challenged myself with over the last couple of years to approach. And I, I understanding how I grew up, I, this feels even dangerous to say, but to approach my own faith and my own uh, uh, views on scripture and, and what, to approach those with the same type of intentionality and um, the, the, the same microscope that I would for any other religion. Yes. Yes. It, that sounds terrible. Like it sounds terrible to put out there. It just feels wrong to say that, that I could, you could take your Wesleyan Arminian viewpoint and put it under the same microscope as if you would a Muslim faith. I don't know that we should that. Well, I mean, I guess I understand what you're saying, but that just sounds wrong. It doesn't, it sounds wrong, right? Right. Except that Jesus said, check out your own plank before you look at someone else's spec, <laughs> right? Like this is actually what we're called to do, but it makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it puts us out of the realm of assumed rightness. And that is very, very upsetting for high control situations because it threatens the established order. It threatens the systems that are in place. I've got, I've got uh, clarity. Why would I muddy the waters with questions that right. that doesn't make sense? Right. Don't disturb the pool and get the dirt up in there. This is that's yeah. It, but 
with that concept in mind, all that we've talked of the big lead up, uh, when, when you're talking about Aiken in your book, uh, what, what was your reframe on, on that particular story? Yeah, well, you know, and that one was kind of tricky because it, we don't walk away from it with necessarily a new, um, a new perspective on it or a new takeaway from, there's not a new moral from it necessarily, but, um, I, I look at that story in the chapter where I talk about control through fear. And, um, I, I pair it with a number of other stories, uh, most from the old Testament that are all about, um, or at least, you know, from my experience growing up, these were the stories that were paraded out about, and this is why absolute to the letter obedience is necessary. Um, and yet we see that when, when the, the plunder is found under Aiken's tent, it's not just Aiken, but it is his family and his livestock and everybody who is taken out to be stoned. Now, this is the same God who says, I don't want child sacrifice. Stop sacrificing your kids to Baal. Stop sacrificing them to Molech. Like that never crossed my mind. That is not what I want. And yet this story is saying, and then we killed the kids too. And the, the, the takeaway um, that I have from that is if the church is more focused on the obedience side of it, and that's why you have to be obedient, rather than pausing to admit, this is horrific. This should give us pause. This should make us stop and say, what is happening here when the God who does not want innocent lives taken, the God who does not want child sacrifice, is suddenly saying, stone the kids and the cows? Like, in our rush to defend the point of view that we want to defend of why obedience matters, we are condemning the Bible and we are condemning God of immorality. Hmm. And that should give us pause. It, it does give me pause because I don't even know where to go next with that. <laughs> Just thinking about <laughs> that. Because, uh, I mean, the concept there is to, you know, I think it's been applied in a lot of ways of if if you are responsible for sin, uh, you're going to bring the entire church down with you and you're going to, you know, God's going to leave because of you um, or someone's going to die because right. of you. Um, so don't, don't do anything bad ever in at all. And I, I feel like too, it can be kind of like a, you feel almost as if you want to hide sin in a way. <laughs> Because right, like, well, right. there is sin in the camp, but I don't want anybody to know about it because then, you know, something terrible is going to happen. Um, and there's that shame component to it. And certainly, again, let's let's say the caveat of we're not I, I'm not saying sin is not a big problem. I'm right. not saying that, right. you know, if you have secret sin in your life. And I think that might be the, the big thing there, secret sin in your life, that it's not going to affect the whole community. Um, right. It brings it around more to bring things into the light, talk about hard things and issues. And then that is what gives life to the community. Um, Where, where else would you go with that? Cause yeah, it it gives me pause. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, I mean that that's exactly it. Like why so many people that I spoke with their anxiety, you know, some people are like, God and I are actually fine or like Jesus and I are good. It's God's people who are, who are really freaking me out right now. You know, that, um, there was one woman who I spoke with in the book who she said, you know, her father was an elder in the church. And so she was privy to all these conversations and debates. And she said, you know, when I heard the way that these people were spoken about, um, and how things were dealt with, she's like, it made me never want to share my fears. It made me never want to, um, speak up. She's like, still as an, you know, as an adult, 30 years later, I'm still afraid to speak up in church because I know how those conversations go. And I'm worried that I will be kicked out of the body when all I wanted was clarity or all I wanted was support. Like I'm, you know, I made a mistake or I, you know, whatever. And I'm afraid that's going to result in me getting the boot because I know how these conversations go. And there were so many people who shared that idea, that fear of being cast out 
for bringing up uncomfortable topics. Um, and, and, and that, and so I think you're exactly right. Like we need, we need to be willing to do that. The church should be the safest place to talk about these things, to talk about doubt, to talk about questions, to say, I'm not sure if, if this is, if this is consistent with the heart of God, or I don't know what I'm dealing with here. And, and we can't be giving pat answers either. Like, that's a really important, that's, that's another thing people talked about was I was sick of just getting like, well, just, just pray more, just read your Bible more. That's not, I've been doing those things. That's not answering my question. Can we please discuss this? Can we please admit this is real? Um, instead of trying to live in, you know, try, trying to kind of do that, the fantasy world of, well, because we're Christians, it's all okay. Or Christians don't sin in that. We don't sin in that way. I, I can understand the the comfort that comes from not addressing these questions because, I mean, even just the the, the metaphor of the boat, rocking the boat. Yeah, don't, right. uh, canoes are tippy. Let's just paddle. We're, let, let, we don't have time for rocking the boat. We need to get on with building the kingdom of God. So, uh, or the, you know, questions that may be answered are the ones that are uh, a defense of the faith. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> Let's talk through how we actually defend our faith and prepare for the questions of the atheists and the people that are agnostic and the people that are Muslim and be prepared to to let them know that they're wrong and we're right. right. Yep. Um, and the, this uh, surprise, I actually do believe I'm right. That's why that's why I'm in the, <laughs> the faith that I, I, I'm in. Um, but that doesn't mean that I need to, well, let's go, let's go here. Uh, cause you do have kind of a concept there where, uh, asking questions in certain religious groups and traditions, it can be misconstrued as, ah, rebellious spirit. Um, mm -hmm. and I've talked about many times on this podcast, uh, in many episodes asking questions and I was given answers of, well, where's your heart on that? You know, where, where, where's that coming from? Um, and so maybe I'll ask you this question. Uh, how can how can questioning God maybe be, because you, you sometimes talk about it as being an indication that you're closer to God mm -hmm. um, rather than being uh, I'm moving away from or the slippery slope or that uh, self-fulfilling prophecy as you move away from some things of people looking at you and say, see, they made changes. They don't. They don't really know God, and they aren't a part of our tradition anymore. And that can happen to you as well. And I just, I'm just looking out for you here. Stay within the fold. Uh, that concept of an indication of closeness to God rather than moving away from God with questions, regardless of what the questions may be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say first of all, you know, I, I think it's important in, in a lot of um, sort of popular psychology, the very simple distinction between guilt and shame is guilt is the idea that I did something wrong and shame is the idea that something is wrong with me. And so, you know, again, popular psychology really likes to address the, the issue of shame. But in the Christian faith, you really can't separate those two because if you did something wrong, that means you know, we shall know them by their fruit, right? It will be known by your fruit. And so if you did something wrong, that means that something was inherently wrong from you and that's why you're producing rotten fruit. So it's impossible to separate the concepts of guilt and shame when talking about the Christian faith. And I think that's important to remember because a lot of people struggle with, um, with feeling shame or feeling guilty. And so I'm going to use them interchangeably when they bring these questions, because they've either been told, you know, something I heard was, you know, like, well, perfect love drives out fear. Mm. And so if you still have fear, then you clearly don't have perfect love or, you know, it, well, if you're not sure if you're saved, then it means you're not saved because you would have the blessed assurance. Okay. That is not helpful to somebody who is struggling with anxiety over these issues. Um, so I think it's really important to keep in mind Romans 8, 26. So that, that sense of anguish and longing that transcends comprehension, you know, where the Holy Spirit, you know, we say when we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the very spirit intercedes with groaning too deep, groanings too deep for words. It's this idea that the Holy Spirit intercedes with God on our behalves by, by communicating worries and fear and shame and loneliness and all these things. 
it's a sign of wisdom and perception and discernment and closeness with God, not distance from God, because the Holy Spirit is, has been pricked, has been triggered to have this response in us. And as we become increasingly aware of perhaps being in an abusive environment or having been raised in and maybe come out of, but still have that, that trauma foundation in how we were taught to understand faith or to understand our relationship with God, yeah, our soul is going to struggle because it recognizes the disharmony between the fear and manipulation and control, that disharmony with that and divine truth and divine love and grace. And so if our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which First Corinthians tells us it is, then when the Holy Spirit responds with a heightened response, that is telling us, should be telling us something is wrong with these external conditions. It is recognizing something's wrong with the environment. You know, again, this is different from repentance. This is different from, oh, I recognize that I did something wrong. This is that deep, all-consuming panic of I can't get to God or I will never be worthy of God. That is telling us the Holy Spirit's rearing up there is showing us that something is wrong with the foundation that we were given, that we were taught about what faith and relationship with God is. That is that trauma response. And so for anyone experiencing that, I would say when you feel that 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 welling up of the Holy Spirit that's that's goes beyond normal repentance, that is a sign of that Holy of the Holy Spirit being so vividly in live with you that is crying out to the Father on your behalf. That is closeness. Like take reassurance from that. Also take steps where that is not going to be as as maybe disruptive or, or you know or, or problematic in terms of emotional health. But that struggle is the spirit's response to the disharmony between what you've been taught and what the reality of God is. Well, and, and with that, bringing it around again to this idea within the book of the spiritual anxiety, um, I don't want to make the wrong decision because then, you know, if God's, if God's will is A and I make decision B, then I guess I'm on B for the rest of my life and A is no longer. So I, where, there goes the perfect will of God and he's just doing some leftovers here on B and then heaven forbid I make another choice under B that actually leads me to, before you know it, I'm on plan like leftover Z and it's like sub Z category. Nate, you should have done better and made this choice when really it might just be what's good, what's better, what's best. I don't, I don't know something along those lines. Yes. And then, so it's like our faith becomes the world's worst choose your own adventure book. Right. So it's, <laughs> you know, then the thing where you're like, well, I left my finger back at this turn so I can exactly. flip it. You know, we can't really do that all the time. Yes. And so that's a big thing I talk about in the book too, because I think um, a lot of times spiritual anxiety can lead to inaction or a feeling like I can't move, you know, um, be still and know that I'm God. Okay. Well, I'm going to be still until I know absolutely am for sure. And I'm not going to make any decisions or take any action until I know for sure what the voice of God is telling me. Because otherwise, if I take the wrong path, whatever comes off is just going to be whatever scraps God could, you know, cobble together to form a semi-decent life. I think that the metaphor I use in the book is that it's like the price is right, you know, and you've got the three doors and you're trying to choose and the whole <laughs> heavenly host is in the stands going door three, door three, you know, but like, what if you pick the wrong one and there's the goat behind it? Um, <laughs> so it sounds like freeze on a trauma response. Yes, absolutely. It is. That's exactly what it is. It is freezing. And so then you, you just suddenly become it. it action is not possible. So what I talk about is the idea of Ignatian discernment and Ignatian, um, Ignatius of Loyola was a 16th century Spanish priest. Um, and he just developed this, um, kind of method for spiritual discernment of consolation and desolation of, you know, how does this sit with your spirit when you have entered into prayer and meditation and contemplation and reading the word, you know, and, and again, that goes back to that idea of, but you can't listen to the flesh. Well, the Bible is not going to speak literally to every situation. 
And a literal application of the Bible in every situation is not always helpful. So what do we do with nuance? What do we do when we're not choosing between there's a clear right and wrong? This isn't a moral choice. This is a choice between several different morally equal options. Which car do I get? Which school do I go to? You know, this isn't, this isn't, do I cheat on my taxes? You know, no, this is, this is making a choice among morally neutral or morally equivalent options. And so an important thing for me in, in overcoming this, because this is a major issue, was just shifting my thinking from praying, Lord, help me pick the right path to saying, Lord, help me pick the best path. Because, yeah, I, I do want God's best. I do want to pick the best path. But even if I don't choose the right path, that implies that there are still other good paths that could be taken. And I think we also, there's a challenge when discernment gets boiled down to just decision making. And we're using God to like be the little spinner, you know, to point to the right decision. When really discernment is about seeking God and closeness to God and knowing that whichever way we choose, God will be with us as we move forward. Yeah. And I think that's so important to remember, especially if you have spiritual anxiety. I, and, if, and if you're listening in and you're like, well, I mean, no one's doing this about car decisions and no one's doing this, but whenever you can, you can, you can make anything. Uh, so when it comes to car, like, um, yes, God told us to be wise with our money and he's going to definitely judge what we did with the talents we were given. Um, so if I make the wrong decision here, and I just, I buy the wrong car. Yeah, this could be the judgment of God. I mean, these, these are real thoughts that people, it can almost turn into like a, what is that, Schroding, Schrodinger's cat or whatever. Yes, you can yes, sit there in exactly. a freeze, yeah. like, okay, as long as I don't actually buy a car for the next six months and I make this one work, um, the next car is neither bad nor good. It's just there, out there. It's a decision needing to be made. I'm I am waiting on the guidance of the Holy Spirit as to which dealership to go to, and I don't feel prompted yet. I mean, the, you're right. There's a lot that can go into this that just freezes you um, mm -hmm. and can also be praised of, look, they 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 waited. Right. They waited right. on the Lord, and it was good. Um, there's so much to get into in this book, um, and we're running out of time. But what, what was before I ask you just a couple more questions, what was your favorite part of Holy Ghosted, what came out as you're you're writing it? It was a couple years in. Uh, what was your favorite part of this? If you had to make a decision on that, after we just got done um, talking about, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd say my favorite part of the process was it was very healing. Um, working some of this out, it was almost I don't want to say the book was verbal processing because I don't want it to sound like that. That's not it, but it was being able to to really systematically have to break some of these things down and really get to the heart of what is going on here what is at the heart of this struggle and then finding out i am not alone i am not the only person going through this and you know you and i spoke you know before before the program that there's this difficult feeling of like i don't wish this on anyone i don't want anyone else to have to be in this club i would love it if nobody else struggled with this but it's also comforting to know I'm not alone and I'm not the only one and that other people are like, I struggle with that too. Um, and just having that sense of, okay, so what I dealt with is not, I'm not just like God's weirdo over here who's just doing their own thing, knowing that this is a, a common experience that maybe we can work through together. You know, that this is not just me willfully misinterpreting something or stubbornly refusing to accept the peace of God. You know, that this is a legitimate thing caused by certain environmental factors that can, they affect people. I mean, I spoke with people who are Catholic, people who are Lutheran, people who come from a charismatic or Pentecostal, fundamentalist, mainline evangelical. I mean, the whole spectrum of, the Christian experience. And this was such a common thread that came out. Um, so just kind of this sense of, of, okay, we're all in this together and we can get through this together. 
And and I love that it opens up uh, a bigger conversation, that it's it's welcoming conversation, bringing people into the conversation, too, that may have at one point been a believer and now they're, you know, atheist or agnostic and understanding their experience as well. Because I think think the Holy Spirit and God the Father and Christ, they are strong enough that I don't need to be their public relations director on earth. Uh, the witness of the Holy spirit in someone's life, I believe is strong enough that I don't have to be the book chapter and verse. Certainly if someone wants to, and they welcome that, let's have a wonderful discussion, but just being in conversation with people without the finger wagging and the the shaming and the, you have a question, bring it. Uh, if I don't know the answer, we'll find it. If we don't find the answer right now, put a pen in it and we'll, yeah, just figure that out as we go. Um, welcoming transparency um, instead of the shame aspect of it. it, it it's, so, it's so much better, I think. Uh, and again, yes, I don't need to absolutely. be that PR director for the Holy Spirit. No, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, that's really what we're called to. It feels like in a lot of churches, um, there is such a fear of saying, I don't know that people will either give us the pat answer or engage in those insane mental gymnastics to lead to a completely illogical conclusion where you just feel like, what is it, that old Geico commercial? Where it's like, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, you know? And like, that's not what we should be bringing to the church. It's okay to say, I don't know. Or like you said, or let's explore this together or tell me more about that. Like that is okay. We don't have to a line that I have in the book where I say God is not a puzzle or like an escape room that we have to solve in order to escape to the next world. It is okay to say, I don't have all the pieces. I'm trying to make sense of it too. Um, I'm going to get some wrong, but I'm doing my best. Um, That's okay. And that's what we need to be. That's what we need to be doing. That's what we should be doing for faith to be a journey. Yeah, the, I, we're we're out of time. I know we are. Um, so we're going to bring it. I want to ask you a question uh, that I ask everyone of uh, just a final thought, something something from you um, uh, that if you could talk directly to the Grace Story community, the listener here, someone that might be uh, struggling with isolation. Uh, due to anxiety, or they might resonate with that that quote of they feel I I want to uh, interact with more Christians within the church, but I'm nervous about it. I feel judged and under a microscope. Um, and man, I got to get this book because I do feel ghosted by God. I feel ghosted by my friends by the church. Uh, what would you say to to those individuals listening in right now? I know how isolating that can feel when you look around and you think, does anyone else feel this way? Um, Am I the only one seeing this? Um, You know, or also feeling like, am I the only person for whom the peace that passeth understanding is not pervading every corner of my life? What am I doing wrong? You are not alone. And what that indicates is not a problem with you. In fact, again, going back to the earlier point of this indicates a closeness, a desire to seek God, which is what discernment is supposed to be. The fact that you are worried about that, are concerned about that, are still trying to connect with God and connect with other believers indicates that you are absolutely in relationship with God, that you are absolutely pursuing the best path forward. And so I would say, um, just, I don't want to say just read and pray because it's, that's not enough, but I would say, take assurance as your starting point, take assurance that you are not rejected or alone or broken or too guilt ridden or whatever to not be able to find some sort of reconciliation within your soul like start with that and then do whatever other steps you need to take which again may not always be what our church leaders recommend so i'd say trust your intuition along with prayer and contemplation um and 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 good counsel you know make sure that you examine the source that's giving you counsel 
but start there and don't don't give up and don't despair. Yeah, systems, uh, religious or not, tend to protect the system. Mm-hmm. Um, a relationship yes. with God is is life giving, and God literally he delights he which just means he is excited just to hang out with you, just yes. to be close to you, and you don't even have to say anything, do anything, be worthy of anything, just be close to. Um, and that's the yearning of God's heart, and that's the yearning that he put in yours as well. Um, yes. So we are out of time. I am excited, though. You are going to be at Women's Conference, Grace Story Women's Conference, uh, November 1st, first weekend of November 2024. Um, so if you heard uh, what you heard here, you want to get to uh, meet Tiffany and uh, talk to her, have her sign uh, a couple of books for you. She will be at Women's Conference in November of this year. And so we're looking forward to having you there. But Tiffany, thank you thank so you. much for coming on Grace Story Podcast and sharing with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yes, I'm really, really looking forward to the conference in November. So thank you for that invitation as well. And if you uh, want to get tickets for that, go over to GraceStoryMinistries.com and check that out. Uh, well, you, the listener, thank you for joining in on this episode and joining in on the conversation. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts there on that app, give us a follow, tap a five-star rating and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow there and hit the notification bell to never miss an episode. We're always eager to hear from you. So reach out with any suggestions, topics, your thoughts or feedback. Nate at GraceStoryMinistries.com. Like I say every time, there is no us without you. So get engaged. Continue on your journey of restoration. We'll see you in two weeks for a new episode. And until then, we'll be praying for you.